Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this is part two of my two-part interview with comedian Wendy Liebman. If you missed part one after this, go back and check that out. It's also a sample of her stand-up act in part one. So who is Wendy Liebman? Well, in 1996, she won the American Comedy Award for Female Comedian of the Year. She's appeared on The Tonight Show, Larry Sanders, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, David Letterman, had a couple of Showtime specials, and was a semifinalist on America's Got Talent. A lot of great insights into a very interesting art, the art of stand-up comedy. So coming up right now, part two with comedian Wendy Liebman. Well, I want to talk about your style because it's very unique. It's like great misdirection. You'd say a line, you'd get a laugh, and then you would do an afterthought that would get another laugh. And then you would do an afterthought after that, and sometimes three or four, and it was it was very unique. And each one was funny because it's like you took a concept and you twisted it and then you twisted it again and you twisted it again. How did you come up with that style? Well, I'm a yogi. No, um, <laughs> I I think everyone's art is informed by what they're exposed to. So in addition to being exposed to your sense of humor. I was around comedians like Don Gavin, who was fast talking and throwing in the asides. And Kevin Meany, who I used to watch, never take a breath and just keep going. And then I was around Jonathan Katz, who was this brilliant misdirection. And Brian Kiley, as I said, my favorite comedian. And um, I sort of incorporated what I was being exposed to. Um, The real answer is I didn't like being on stage when there was silence. So I kept adding things and uh, that helped because I didn't like the silence. It's almost like I like being on stage, but don't look at me. (laughs) Don't (laughs) don't look at real me. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I think 
my style is like Ellen's a little bit and Kevin Nealon. So I can't really take, um, I can't claim that I'm the first to do that. But well, you were the first to do it as far as, as I was concerned. And especially among women comics, where so much of them, it seems to me, the ones that I've heard, lesbian jokes or self-deprecating sex jokes. And and your style was just, just very funny and and very unique. And uh boy, you sure heard the words of Phyllis Diller, because you just bam, bam. And and it's like you're not expecting another punchline. You're expecting a setup or something, and all of a sudden, like, bam, there's another punchline. And it's like, okay, there's two punchlines in a row. Oh my god, a third. <laughs> and the third is even funnier. Well, I do do a period joke. Yes, you do do a period joke. Do your period joke. I got my period today. It was so late. Most of my friends got it when they were 13. So um, anyway, I don't do that joke anymore. But <laughs> And I can't uh, do the joke about ha- taking a year off to have a baby anymore. <laughs> do you write constantly? Uh, how often do you churn through material so my career is very slow because i am very protective of the jokes that i've already written and like for example i have re i've done one joke my entire career the joke is i'm a writer um I write checks. They're mostly fiction. So that's the joke that was born out of pain because I was taking a writing class with the woman, Annie Dillard, who wrote Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek. And it was a highly, highly sought after fiction writing class. And the second semester, she didn't accept me back, but we all went to the class anyway. And three of us had to slink out when she didn't call our name. And one of my classmates said, are you ever going to write again? And I said, I'm not even going to write a check. So that's how that joke was born. Um, And up until last week, that's the way I've done it. And I was thinking the other day, well, maybe it's funnier if I said I write fiction. Well, checks. So like I'm always (laughs) working on what I already have. And I don't feel bad about that. Um, but uh, I do try to write every day. And Twitter, obvi- not obviously, but honestly, Twitter has helped me in that. I'm always trying to think of something funny or something that happened that day. How much when you go up and, and do a set, how much is new material? Do you sprinkle in three or four or is it like, okay, 40% is going to be the new stuff. I'm going to try it out. And, and then again, you refine and refine and refine. What's new to me is the order. And 
I trick myself or surprise myself with what comes out of my mouth. So even though I have it all written out before I go on, I try to be in the moment and I'll surprise myself with what I say. To answer your question about how much is new, if I get two new jokes in, I'm happy. So that's why I say my career is slow. How long is a set normally? Um, In L.A., you get like 10 minutes or 12 minutes. On the road, I do 45 minutes. Mm. And I got to perform this past weekend. I had two really interesting gigs. One was at the Greenwich Library. Now, I'm talking state-of-the-art library. Oh, by the way, you... You wrote on my Facebook page, because as I said, I crowdsource sometimes and I try mm-hmm. to get help. You said the funniest thing. I The premise was a microphone in a library is like, and you wrote cufflinks on pants. <laughs> and that got a huge laugh because I read this poem or this piece that I had written at the end, for the end based on everybody's um chiming in 667 people chimed in i know we all you know we we see a chance to do a punchline we can't resist oh my god well you got like the biggest laugh well thank you yes (laughs) um and so that was the first gig performing in a library in the theater um and then the second gig was in arrow rock missouri Population 56. People came in from around. It wasn't just those 56 people. And both shows I had to work clean. Um, So I had to clean up one joke that I always do. And it worked. So I'm very excited about that. Can I tell the joke? Can I? Sure. Okay. You can even tell the dirty version. I'm going to tell the dirty version first and then tell you. So the dirty version is that when I was growing up in sixth grade, my friends Patty Alberman and Grace Hershorn used to come over and we swore. That's what we did. We swore a lot. So my dad put a swear jar in the kitchen. And then at the end of the year, we took the money and we went to the fucking Bahamas. (laughs) So that's the dirty joke. And then I'm like, what am I, how am I going to tell that? And I've thought about this before, but I haven't really tried it. So then I said, so we took the money and we went to the Bahamas. And that got a laugh. And then I said, and Disneyland and Machu Picchu and the Grand Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept adding. <laughs> That's how much money you, right. you put into it. Yeah. And it got a laugh anyway. <laughs> how how often do you perform a year now? Are you yeah. performing like every other weekend somewhere? So I try to perform at least once a week somewhere. There are a lot of clubs in L.A. Um, I work a lot at Flappers and more recently the Improv. And then there are little rooms like the Crow. And um, I haven't worked there yet, but I just got a show there. Um, so before COVID, I had been hit by a car. I don't know if I've told you this. No, I, I knew about this. I don't yeah. think the audience has. 
So before yeah. COVID, I had been hit by a car and my leg was broken and both feet, like literally I couldn't stand up. So I couldn't do my job. And this was before COVID and Zoom. So I didn't even consider that possibility of performing online. Um, so I didn't perform for a long time and then COVID hit and then I started doing a few Zoom shows. So I'm really just getting back out there. And um, I feel a little bit renewed. So I have a lot more energy to do live performances. My biggest problem, even after 38 years, and I'm not joking, is figuring out what to wear on stage. <laughs> That's my biggest problem. Yeah, Sam Kinison never had that problem. You just wear the same damn thing every time. I would love to just wear a big coat. <laughs> <laughs> so backing up a little bit, how did you make the jump from clubs to TV, getting on TV shows? So I was in Boston and working regularly, but I still had a day job. At that point, I was... Um, working at Radcliffe College, I was an administrative assistant. Um, it was a it was called the Bunting Institute. It was a fellowship program for women. We funded women in the arts and science, math, and they were very supportive of me. So they even let me come in at eleven instead of nine because they knew I was out late at night. So I was working a lot in Boston, doing two jobs, day and night. And um, Bud Friedman came to town for the, it was the Johnny Walker comedy competition sponsored by the improv. And I was one of the comedians and it was actually his wife, Alex, who shoved Bud and said, she's funny. So I won in Boston and they sent me out to LA to compete in the finals. Well, I didn't win in, in LA, but Jim McCauley, who was the booker for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, saw me and said, why haven't we seen you before? And uh, would you like to do the show next week? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So then I flew home and then I flew back and was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So that's basically how I made that. What was that like after being a kid watching The Tonight Show? And I remember back in the 70s, that was the brass ring. You know, that if you were booked on The Tonight Show, that's how you became Freddie Prince and David Letterman, Jay Leno, etc. Ellen DeGeneres. And yeah. Drew Carey. Um, it was surreal. I still get nervous thinking about it. And I had an uncle who is this prominent doctor, and he was always very dismissive. And after he saw me on The Tonight Show, he would brag about me. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it gave me- I always knew she had it. <laughs> I always knew. Gave me credibility in my family. So, um, yeah, it, it's still surreal. So you know how he goes like this after you're set or right. over the couch? So he went like that, but the- the home audience didn't see it. Only the audience there saw it. And I saw it, but I was disappointed that I knew it wasn't caught on camera. So he heard that and he and Ed McMahon came to my dressing room to say, you'll have to come back. Now I never got to go back, but I still, I felt somewhat redeemed that he took the time to come to my dressing room. I just remember going, oh my God, it's Johnny Carson and he's really tall. You were also on Larry Sanders, right? I was on Larry Sanders. What did you play on Larry Sanders? You had to act. I Well, no, I was doing my set. Still? <laughs> so Gary Shandling was a fan. And he, there was one script where um, his sidekick was having an affair. And watching the show from his affair, from his hotel room. And he had me on the show doing stand-up about being married. Uh And um, I still get 65-cent checks every once in a while. Wow. (laughs) I get get one-cent checks. Do you? Yeah, I literally get one-cent check. Cost him $5 to process the check and send it. Right? But, yeah. 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 I, I deposit them. Yeah. There used to be a bar in the Valley called residuals where if you had a residual check less than a dollar, you could buy a drink and they eventually had to stop that practice because too many people were coming in. Hysterical. Yeah. They would hang them up on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. I also once got a letter from MTM uh, saying uh, we, we did an audit and we overpaid you by 17 cents in 1985, uh, could you please return them? It's like, fuck no. It's like, Mary Tyler Moore needs my 17 cents? Fuck no. That's hysterical. Well, you did a Showtime special. Now, for that, did you, like, prepare and do clubs for two months to hone your material or you just had your material and just went up and did it. So I, I did the special. I, we didn't know that it was going to be for Showtime. My husband, um, Jeff Sherman, he produced it and um, we didn't know where it was going to land. We paid for everything out of pocket. We got a, a, a a donor and um, I just shot it. I invited all my friends, which if you're doing a stand-up comedy show, don't invite people that have seen your material. <laughs> <laughs> the audience is just my friends. We shot it at the El Portel Theater, and we only did it once. If you're doing a comedy show, do it twice. Um, and then, then we sold it to Showtime. So... I guess I had just been working on my material for all those years. But then I got to do another Showtime special, which was just 10 minutes of material more recently. Um, Even more funny women of a certain age. And I got to meet um, 
my now writing partner, Terry Hatcher. So that was the upside of that show. Okay, back up, back up a minute here. Terry Hatcher, comedy writer. So Terry um, was asked to be on this show, even more funny women of a certain age, to do 10 minutes. And Wait, Terry wrote, Hatcher has 10 minutes of stand-up material? She wrote it, and it's hilarious. Okay. I, I believe she was taking a class with a woman named Nikki Levy. Um, and from that class, she had written a piece and turned it into a stand-up piece. And she's one of the funniest people I know. So, yeah, I mean, you never know who's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I would not have guessed Terry Hatcher. That would not have been my my first guess. So funny. And we got along. We're simpatico. And, um, yeah, we've been working on a few ideas. Like writing stand-up or like writing a a series or something? Writing uh, one series and one reality show. Okay. How has your act evolved over the years? Has your delivery changed much? You're nodding. That doesn't help me. I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Podcast, Wendy. Podcast. My act has changed over the years for sure. In that I think I used to talk up here and was really fast and didn't take a breath. And as I said, I didn't like being on stage in silence. Now I look for those moments where I can just breathe with the audience. And, um, you know, I think um, I've slowed down and my voice has gotten deeper. Partly, I used to smoke. So I think I, I, I have more uh, gravel in my voice. So, so physically, I my act has changed in that way, but I also think that I um, I'm not as um, I'm I try to have like a through line now instead of just throwing jokes out. So, I still would like to evolve, Ken, and have like tell stories because I think the audience loves when you tell stories you know i tried stand-up one time only as basically a an experiment for the podcast a friend of mine is a stand-up comedian and she was able to book me into an open mic night and uh someplace in the valley that i've never heard of and i was scheduled at 9:45 and they were starting at 8. So I went at 8 cuz I wanted to see all of the people before me and they were all young comedians. And I was shocked cuz like I said I spent a lot of time at the comedy store and watched those comics really refine their act and really analyze the comedy and what worked and what didn't and what nuances we could add and that sort of thing. And for the most part, these people were getting up and just haphazard throwing out stuff going, uh, okay, how much time do I got? And they were coming in with cards and they do a joke and they go, 
All right. Well, fuck it. You guys don't like the penguin jokes. Uh, let me see. What about this? And, and I'm thinking to myself, seriously, you guys think you're going to make it professionally? Um, and I, I was just, I was just shocked. Is that, and somebody said, oh, well, that's the new, that's the new comedy today. Like not being funny. Like what, what is the new comedy today? Do you find that with young comedians that you've seen? I've seen a lot of younger comedians go, what can I tell you about? Or um, what should I tell you next? Yeah. But, but I can't make a blanket statement like that because I still do see comedians working on a set. Um. But I you mean, know the, one, the ones who are going to actually make it, <laughs> 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 the ones that actually ha- have a chance, because you want to say to some of these these people, you're in competition with people who are honing their act every single night. They're going to kill you. <laughs> well, I, I absolutely agree. I think maybe some comedians are or some performers are on stage to be seen for something else, not necessarily to have a career in comedy, that they are trying to be actors or influencers. So it's not necessarily to be a stand-up. Yeah, I wish I had taken a photo of the audience and there was like about maybe 45 people by the time I went up I wish I'd take I bet I would have loved to have taken a photo of the audience reaction when I came on the stage which was oh my god what is grandpa doing what (laughs) (laughs) like who is this guy well you know what Ageism in comedy is a joke because we get funnier. Like, how have I evolved? We know that. We know that. I know. I'm funnier now than I was when I was 23 or 24, whenever I started, because I have to laugh at things. Um, And I've also, my brain, I'm trying to train my brain to look for the funny things, you know, so it's been a lot of practice. Um, and to say that older comedians aren't good is ridiculous. Yeah, I still can't watch an episode of MASH that my partner and I wrote and not go, give me one more day with that script. <laughs> <laughs> I could make it so much better now. No, they're perfect, Ken. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I I hope so because... They've been seen 600 million times. So, wow. I mean, I yeah. know I'm not interviewing you, but I have a question for you. Okay. Do you write for Alan Alda's character mostly? Mm-hmm. mostly? Was that your voice? No, I would say it was like everybody. A- Alan was kind of my ideal voice, <laughs> you know? It's like, I wish I could be that witty all the time, so... Yeah. Uh Alan was more Larry Gelbart, I, I would have to say, than than me. 
So in today's world, how much of your act from, say, 10 years ago could you not do today? You mean because Because of, well, political correctness. uh, I better not go this direction. I better not talk about that. Things that were fine 10 years ago that now would be considered borderline or offensive. So I've never been that comedian. So I have to say none of it. Okay. Um, But I do remember in my first year of doing stand-up, I thought of opening my set by saying, so I'm in the middle of being raped. (laughs) (laughs) And I never said that because I just stopped myself. But I still thought that was funny. But it is funny, but it sets you up as a certain persona. It's like Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer could start a set that way. And and that's who they are. And that's not who you are. Right. So my point is, I never went there thinking uh, out of that norm, out of the norm. So, you know, I've been doing some jokes this whole time as I've said about my writing joke. Um, And people go, well, that's weird. And I go, well, not that I'm Bruce Springsteen, but he still sings Born to Run in his act. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm still telling them I'm a writer, I write checks joke. (laughs) Well, you are super funny. It's a joy to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And to hear that from you, Ken Levine, I am just on cloud nine right now. It's because she doesn't really know me, but I'll take it. So that'll do it for my two-part interview with Wendy Liebman. Thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, John Wolfert, Howard Hoffman, Bruce and Jason Miller. Next week... I'm going to answer more of your questions, so tune in for that. You can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Check out my cartoons there, and you're welcome to subscribe and follow me. Also, I have an email address, should you wish to get in touch. It's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Once again, our thanks to Wendy Liebman, and we will see you again next week. Bye. Hollywood and the Vine!